Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, I'm Michael Kingswood, and it's story time. Okay, back from my little uh, semi-unplanned trip. Uh, Sorry about the weird intro last week, but uh, eh, it's been a weird couple of weeks in general in the world, right? Uh, So the... X and I, uh, we periodically, we're teens for the kids. We get along okay. We periodically take the kids off on family trips. Uh, and we had talked about for a while about getting out of Dodge here this summer and uh, going to explore Utah. Um, partly just to see stuff because hadn't really been there. I've been to Salt Lake City once for a couple of days. Uh, but also, um, there's something that she'd been wanting to go to for a while. And the kids like mountains and hiking. So, yeah, why not? Uh, but also there was the old uh, trying to tempt people with places to think about to live that are not California because I want to get the hell out of here. But anyway, um, we'd, debate, we'd been debating when in June to do that. And uh, it was going to be for a while we were going to do it last week. But then we decided to put it off for a week because of some stuff going on in town here with some kids activities. But then the whole rioting and burning down cities thing happened and that started getting worrisome and then people started finding in the suburbs here in san diego uh bundles of firewood along the side of the road hidden underneath badly hidden underneath strips of artificial turf and i started remembering that you know the antifa guys were like hey we're gonna go to the burbs and print you guys out and i was like geez i don't want to have to shoot anybody uh, hey, let's get the hell out of Dodge. And she agreed, so we left. Uh, spent a week driving around Utah, hiking the mountains in Zion and near St. George, and then exploring Salt Lake City in the area to the east of Salt Lake City there, checking out the Salt Lake and the island on there, and uh, hiking a lot and seeing sights. And it was a really cool time. Had a good good fun. Um, expanded my horizons a bit, expanded the kids' horizons. And in that time, came to realize, okay, Things aren't actually burning the entire place down yet. Just select areas for political purposes because it's an election year. So, of course, we have to have chicanery in election year, apparently. Uh, so, got back. And so, while we were out there, I recorded. I had recorded the chapters for last week before we left. But I'd forgotten to do the intro. So, I did the intro there in the, the hotel lobby, as I think I told you. And then, uh, yeah, so... That's the reason why last week's episode was a little funky on the uh, sound quality uh, the intro. Anyway, we got back. Been, been uh, doing normal routine here again. And so, new week. Time to do another episode. Uh, let's see where we left off at the end of chapter 48. They had just gotten to the station. Let's continue on and uh, see what happens with Joe and company now as they're pushing in towards the end. Maybe. Or maybe towards their death.
<laughs> we'll find out. All right, I hope you enjoy these two chapters. I'll talk to you on the flip side. Chapter 49. Ghost Town. The main corridor was deserted. That was odd. Joe checked her wrist chronometer. 1100. It was far too early for traffic to have died down this much, so where was everybody? A chill ran down her spine as she looked left and right down the passageway. It was wide, wider than any corridor on Pericles, but then the station handled a much larger volume of personnel and cargo than a Starliner could ever dream of. The ring they had docked in was large enough that the corridor's curvature was hard to see unless you focused more than a few meters away. Then the slow upslope in each direction became obvious. Past a few hundred meters in either direction, the floor met the ceiling, apparently, the portions of the ring beyond hidden from view by its curvature. It was often disconcerting to the planet-bound who were used to the ground, or the sea, curving downward in the distance, but to Joe it was natural as the stars in the night sky, even as far removed from it as she had been these last two years. The corridor was illuminated at intervals by recessed lights in the ceiling and by lit signs labeling the passageways that crossed every few tens of meters. Artwork from the various regions of Earth and of the other colonized worlds hung at regular intervals, and potted plants as well as the occasional sitting area gave the place a warmer feel than the uninitiated might expect from a space station. But just as people had long ago learned that it paid dividends to design Starliner living quarters as comfortably and naturally as possible to increase morale and productivity, the same held true for stationary bases. People simply responded positively to beauty, to natural things, and so they were included. Joe preferred to focus on the fact that it made life aboard more peaceful than on the practical reasons for doing it. Not that it mattered at this moment. The fact remained that the corridor should have been bustling with activity, or at least have some people scurrying to and fro. This is bad, Grant said, echoing Joe's thoughts. They must have locked down this section when we docked. That little chill in Joe's spine became an icy shard of fear. What do we do? Grant exchanged a look with his brother, who shrugged. Then Grant grunted, then also shrugged. He looked back at Joe with serious eyes. We go on. Be ready. This could get ugly. Fast. With that, he stepped fully into the corridor and turned right, moving at a brisk jog toward the lift, which should lay 200 meters ahead and on the left. Thomas remained still for a moment, then gestured for Joe and Malcolm to get moving. He would bring up the rear. Joe swallowed and drove the loader up into the corridor, following Grant's lead. Malcolm hurried to follow, walking briskly to keep up. At each crossing passageway, Joe half-expected troops to jump out and ambush them, but that never happened. She continued along in her loader, driving at a pace that just matched Grant's jog, and within moments they reached the lift leading to the station's central hub. It took a few moments for the lift to arrive in response to their call, giving Thomas plenty of time to catch up. He looked tense, no less so than his brother. Neither of them looked tense enough, though, to match the anxiety coursing through Joe's veins. This doesn't make any sense, she said. If they lock the station down, why aren't they coming to get us? Why is the lift working? Grant shook his head. He had no more answer to give. Even Malcolm looked perplexed. Nothing for it but to keep going, Thomas offered. That was the problem, though. The lift was the only way to get to the central hub. Not sure there were emergency access tubes, but they were merely ladder wells, and the hub lay a few kilometers above them. It would be a difficult climb for an unencumbered person even though the G's would gradually reduce as they neared the hub and the centripetal acceleration for the ring's motion faded. But they were far from unencumbered. It would be next to impossible to haul the incubator up a ladder. Maybe if it's floating units or whatever the researchers had decided to call the devices within it that it allowed the aliens to just push it through the air while it levitated off the deck were still functioning, but with those units removed... Now that just left the lift. More and more, the lift began to feel like an invitation to an arrest or execution more than a passage to the station's hub. 
The lift doors open. Joe expected to be looking down the barrel of a plasma rifle or a slug thrower. Instead, there was only the empty rectangular chamber of the lift itself. She exchanged glances with the men, then drove the loader into the lift. Again unto the breach, and all that. The men followed, and the doors slid shut behind them. A moment later, they sped upward toward the station's hub. The feeling of gradually reducing G's was always disconcerting. This was one aspect of space travel, where the planet-bound fared the same as starfarers. No matter how long most people spent in space, whether in zero-G or simulated, they never developed a way to adjust to gravitational differences on the fly, without at least a few moments of disorientation. Try though she might, school her mind though she had, Joe had always been one of those most people. She found herself swallowing to put down a growing queasiness as she felt herself grow lighter and lighter. It felt like her breakfast was going to come up along with the rest of her. She had never actually gotten space sick, though she knew a fair number of colleagues who had, but it sometimes took a large effort of will not to. It did not help that she was already on edge, nerves frayed. For a moment, the general nervousness she had been feeling erupted into terror, not of being caught or killed, but of humiliation. If she lost it here, she would never live it down. Oh, Malcolm would never mention it, and Thomas, at least, looked more than a bit queasy himself, so he would understand. But Joe was not sure she would ever be able to look at herself in the mirror again without flinching. But it was going to happen anyway. She was going to sick up. And then she left her seat as the lift came to an abrupt, screeching halt that almost lifted the loader off the deck it was so abrupt. Joe landed awkwardly, but not as hard as she would have thought because of the low G's. She estimated, without realizing she was doing it, that she was at about one-half her normal weight. All the same, the unexpected stop threw her for a loop, and for a few seconds all she could do was look around in confusion, her nausea forgotten. Fuck! Thomas summed the situation up nicely. Chapter 50 Stuck in a Box Silence reigned for a moment. No one said anything. Maybe that would make what had just happened not be real. Or maybe everyone else was as stunned as Joe felt. More likely the latter. And why not? One moment they were hurtling toward the station hub, their goal in sight and getting closer by the minute. The next they were stopped, thrown up from the floor by the force of their stopping. It was enough to put anyone off her game. Finally, Malcolm spoke up. Maybe it's a mechanical problem. He neither looked nor sounded like he really believed it, but he really hoped it was true. Grant snorted loudly. Thomas was a half second behind. The looks they gave Malcolm were dubious, almost scornful, as though they could not believe he would say something so stupid. I think we all know that's not what happened, Joe said. She slid off the loader and walked to the lift controls, near the doors. The control panel was dark, lifeless. It was not going to work. All the same, she hit the button for the hub level. Nothing happened. Joe stepped away from the panel and frowned. Now what? muttered Thomas. At least the lights are still on, Grant replied. As though his speaking had somehow jinxed it, the lights picked that precise minute to flicker, and for a moment Joe thought they were going to be extinguished completely. Then the small display screen at the top of the control panel flickered to life, revealing a woman's face. She wore a satisfied smile, and her eyes shone with victorious glee. Joe recognized her immediately. Chandini. You've led us a merry chase, Captain Ishikawa, Chandini said. Joe blinked, surprised at the audio, before she remembered the speakers mounted in the lift's walls to accommodate those who desired music through the several minutes-long trip from the ring to the central hub. Joe did not bother to answer. There was no way Chandini could hear her regardless. The deputy director surprised her, though. No need to pout, she said, her smile growing just a tad bit more broad. We've been waiting for you for some time. What the fuck does that mean, Grant said, to Joe's left. The director's smile did not flinch, but her eyes darted toward Grant. 
It means, Mr. Guilford, that there were only a few courses of action left to the good captain, and only one place to turn if she followed the most illogical option. There must have rigged a microphone to lift somewhere, but where? Then Joe about smacked herself. The emergency call button. There had to be a microphone in there, else the passengers could not call for help if something went wrong. Stupid. But then, Joe had felt stupid a lot lately, so why should this day be any different? Chandini's eyes turned back to Joe. You did not actually think you'd get away with something like this, did you? She definitely sounded amused. Joe found herself crossing her arms over her chest defensively. I sort of did, yes. The deputy director smirked. I'll be seeing you shortly, she said. Then the screen went dark. Fuck me, Grant said. How the hell does she know who we are? He looked at Thomas, who shrugged, spreading his hands helplessly. Maybe your organization in Brisbane is not as secure as you think, Malcolm offered. The brothers cast baleful looks at him, but said nothing. From the expressions on their faces, it was clear they were not discounting Malcolm's conjecture out of hand. Never mind all that, Joe snapped. They'll be coming, if they don't just bring the lift back down on remote. By now, they were well above the ring's upper levels. It would be far more efficient just to bring the lift back down, and given they had the ability to stop it, Joe could not see why they would not do that very thing and quickly. Any ideas how to get out of this? Lord knew she was coming up blank. Grant and Thomas looked at each other and frowned a similar frown. Right now, except for the fact that Grant had a goatee and Thomas was clean-shaven, they could have been looking in the mirror so similar they looked. Neither spoke. It was like they were working out the details by telepathy or something. But there's no time for that sort of thing. Apparently, Malcolm felt the same. He raised his plasma rifle and fired a shot into the control panel. It blew out in a shower of sparks and slag. Well, that'll help, Thomas said in a wry tone. More than you might think, Malcolm said. The internal relays in the controls interface with the interlocks in the station's transit control system. If those relays are not functioning, they won't be able to order the lift back down. He paused, frowned, then shrugged. Or at least it'll take a little bit longer for them to be able to do it. Joe blinked, surprised. She didn't know that. Where'd Malcolm learned it? He noticed her expression and quirked an eyebrow at her. Engineer, remember? He grinned in a self-deprecating manner. We don't get the sexy shore jobs you pilot types get. I did a stint or two on these stations, back before I joined you on the Pericles. Right, Grant interrupted, not to spoil the stroll down memory lane or anything, but... He left off the rest, but his meaning was clear. What the hell does that have to do with us getting out of here? A very good question, and from the smug look on his face, Joe suspected Malcolm knew the answer. He grinned and gestured toward the ceiling, where the hub access doors were situated. Shall we get out of here, then? By the time the lift would have reached the station's hub, all the ring centripetal G's would have gone away completely. That meant the doors to the lift could be placed anywhere since everyone and everything within would essentially be just floating around. Given that, it made perfect sense to place the hub access doors at the ceiling and keep the ring access doors on the side walls. Personnel and objects could simply float into the lift from the hub, and as the rotational G's built up, slide down one of the walls to the floor. By the time they reached the ring, they could walk or be pushed out just like on any lift planet side. Which was all fine and well, except that now neither set of doors opened to much of anything that was of use. The side doors just faced the side wall on the lift shaft, and the hub doors pointed up. A long ways up, but that was where they needed to go, so... You want us to climb the rest of the way up? Grant said. Malcolm nodded. There are access ladders along the shaft, between the chutes for the lift cars. But what about that thing? Thomas said, nodding at the incubator, which rested on the loader's twin arms still. Can't exactly haul that up a ladder, it weighs a ton. No, it weighed a ton. Down there... Malcolm pointed downward toward the floor and the ring below. Here it's about half that, and it'll be less the closer we get to the hub. The brothers looked dubious, but Malcolm was right. It could work. Maybe. We've got rope, 
Joe said, coming to Malcolm's aid. Two of us can climb to the next landing and pull while the other two lift up from below. It will be difficult at first, but... Thomas snorted, loudly. It'll be well past difficult. Malcolm spread his hands in a helpless gesture. Do you have a better idea? Thomas was right. Difficult did not even begin to describe it. Even at about half its normal weight, the incubator still had to weigh 30, 40 kilograms or more. Grant and Thomas, lifting together, could get it up fairly well. But they could only reach halfway to the hub access doors, and later, less than halfway between landings of the ladder. That left Malcolm and Joe to haul the delicate machine the rest of the way up. They took care to use two strands of rope for redundancy, and to tie it off securely enough that the thing was not going to leave the rope's grip for anything short of someone coming up and actually cutting the rope with a knife. All the same, for the first several landings, the only thing Joe could think of was what would happen if they lost it somehow. The incubator would fall, and fall far. Depending on how they lost it, it could actually fall into a neighboring lift chute, so it would fall all the way down to the ring, to its certain destruction. Even the shorter fall to their stranded lift would likely damage it badly, and after several landings, the height became such that it was probably academic which fate would be worse for the incubator. Joe did not even want to think about that, about what it would mean to, well, to everything. Fortunately, the higher they got, the lower the G's, and after a dozen or so landings that required what was probably excessive amounts of effort to bring the incubator up, the device's weight had lowered to the point that just one man could lift it up from below and then haul it up from above. Regardless, all things considered, it was tiring work, both physically and mentally. But finally, after what seemed an age, but was in reality probably less than an hour and a half, they made it to the top of the shaft. There, they paused at the hub access doors to catch their breath and to consider. They're going to be waiting on the other side of these doors, you know, Thomas said. Joe nodded. In all likelihood, he was entirely correct. He frowned. I don't have much practice fighting in zero-G. Thomas glanced at his brother, who shook his head. He had no training in it either. If it's any consolation, you probably have more idea how to go about it than I do, Joe said, earning a look in return that said it was not any kind of consolation at all, but thank you very much. She shrugged. I don't think station security usually trains for zero-G trouble either, though, so we'll be on equal... Malcolm snorted. You really think it'll be station security coming after us? Joe paused. He had a point. The NSA had not involved locals before. They would probably want to keep things hush-hush, so they would use their own goons. Probably the same goons, actually. So there was a good chance it was more waiting for them. Did they train for zero-G combat? There was no way to know, and Joe would accomplish nothing sitting around belly-aching over it. It was time to go. Joe took a deep breath. All right, let's move. Remember, we're heading to the transport tube in the center of the hub. The transports have cargo mounts to carry the incubator, and will get us to the Starliner levels in just a couple minutes. Assuming they're not shut down too, Grant said. Wasn't he just a ray of sunshine? We'll deal with that when we get to it, Joe said, trying to sound confident despite the fact that her stomach was doing backflips in her belly from nerves. Everyone ready? Nods all around. Okay, let's do it. She nodded at Malcolm, who pushed himself over to the center of the access doors. He tripped their actuating assembly, and a moment later, the doors slid open. Alright, well, hopefully to no one's surprise, the bad guys are in fact showing up for the showdown. Um... You got that hint a few chapters back when uh, Jackie was calling her girl from the phone booth and she looked out at the spinning stars and the earth below and I was trying to show with that that, hey, look, it's on a station. Yeah. I assume you got that. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, Chandini and company are here and uh, shocker, right? I mean, yeah, who couldn't see what Joe's plan was? I mean, if you, if you figure that Joe's going to push on through the end, what's her option, right? 
If she, if, and especially when they see that she stole the thing, what's she gonna do? Hang out on Earth? Mm, well, maybe, but where? They'd have to have to assume that you'd catch her at some point, and she would have to assume that too. Well, so yeah, so you gotta get off the planet, and of course, she's a Starliner captain. Well, gee, maybe you go to where the Starliners are. Yeah, makes sense, right? So heading towards a collision here, and uh, we'll see what happens with that next week. Uh, we're getting towards the end. There's only 60 chapters in the whole book. So uh, five more episodes unless I decide to double up or triple up on some chapters, chapter readings in the future. But I like to keep these around a half hour, 20 minutes to a half hour total. So, yeah, like I said, five more episodes. So it's been a little bit, a little bit less than a month. We'll be done with this and uh, move on to other cool stories. Um, hopefully you like it. If you do, please let me know. Drop me a line. Go to the website. Send an email. Uh, by all means, uh, rate the podcast on iTunes or all the other, whatever other podcast or thing you got. Subscribe on the video channels and to the podcast feed. And yeah, come back next week. If you really like it, yeah, you can go buy the book. Links are down below. And you can go to my website and uh, become a member or join the newsletter. And uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, yeah, hope you guys have a great week. I'll talk to you again next time. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com, where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mail list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>